Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Every day, our world gets a little more connected. But a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. And speaking of live shows, I'm happy to announce that I and Tom Myers will be headed back to Joe's Pub at the Public Theater for another live edition of our Ghost Stories of Old New York. We had such a great time last year that we are doing it again with five all-new ghost stories. Now, we have three shows announced, two on Sunday, October 27th, and one on Halloween, October 31st. Now, all the shows last year were sold out, so get your tickets today. Just visit the website for Joe's Pub at the Public to get your tickets, or you can head over to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for more information. And we'll see you there. The Bowery Boys, Episode 295, Saving the City, the New York Women of the Progressive Era. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. I swear, this is Tom's last week away from the show, but I will be joined in this episode by several guests who will help me tell a very special story. Within just a few decades, between the 1880s and the 1920s, so much social change occurred within American life, upending so many cultural norms and advancing so many important social issues that these years became known as the Progressive Era. Now, we've talked about many aspects of the Progressive Era on this show, political reforms, labor movements, Crackdowns on vice, even prohibition itself, is considered an end result, albeit a faulty one, of the progressive era. But on today's show, I want to talk about one particular aspect of the movement, the lives of women and children in the late 19th century. The conditions of our world are so different today. Parenting is totally different, well-being, education... Decent health care is a luxury in comparison to the 1890s. Playgrounds are now an assumed part of an urban environment. Women can give birth in sanitary conditions, in the care of trained professionals, and they can even decide for themselves whether to conceive a child at all. All of these advancements in modern life came from the progressive era, and all of them because of the leadership and insight of women. In 1776, a group of rich, educated Christian white men would walk into Independence Hall in Philadelphia and help to form a brand new nation. 100 years later, 
a movement would begin thanks to a more diverse group of people, including women, rich or poor, white or black, Christian or Jewish. In a variety of fields of social change to transform that new nation into the most advanced country in the world. And they would make a city of immigrants and wealth, New York City, finally into a livable home for millions. These are the women who saved New York. We begin our story here with three lovely houses on a little street named for a Revolutionary War hero. In the year 1827, there was no Lower East Side. The city of New York had not yet advanced much further up Manhattan Island then. There was only actually an East Side, or in the case of Henry Street, named for the war hero Henry Rutgers, a far East Side. Along the water's edge here, the area was defined by great shipyards that dated back to New York's colonial years. Henry Street, sitting a few blocks back from those shipyards, was a very modest but very genteel street, the home of wealthy merchants and shipbuilders. A young street lined with federal-style housing of the type perhaps more familiar today along Washington Square Park. The houses at 263 and 265 Henry Street were built in 1827, and their neighbor 267 joined them in 1834. Now, these were handsome and restrained houses, and they signaled a prosperity that was never to come to Henry Street. The sorts of establishments more favored by sailors and shipbuilders, namely saloons and brothels, well, these soon took over the neighborhood. And in 1833, just two blocks south on Water Street, an innovative type of railroad flat building was constructed, meant to house many different tenants at once. This form of housing would soon become known as the tenement. The wealthier residents of Henry Street soon fled, and their old one-family homes were soon modified into multi-family dwellings. But the story of these three houses on Henry Street was just beginning. As the homes on Henry Street were being constructed, New York City, and of course America in general, was about to change. It was in that decade, in the 1830s, that almost 600,000 new immigrants would arrive to America, mostly Irish and German. In hindsight, this would be a rather modest number. By the 1860s, almost half the population of New York City was foreign-born, most of them inhabiting the tenement districts of the city, slums, as they were called, overcrowded areas in a city unequipped to handle the sudden population of poor residents. Even though sometimes just a block or two away from certain slum areas, you would have small pockets of great wealth that would thrive along Fifth Avenue, for instance, around Union and Madison Squares, an elite enriched by great prosperity, many removed just by a generation from those poor and struggling within the same city. The immigration story in America, though, was just beginning, because by the 1870s, many American cities like Chicago and Boston were facing the same type of overcrowding. 
newly arrived immigrants from Italy and Eastern Europe were arriving in even greater numbers, moving into those housing districts in New York that had already been pressed to the breaking point a generation earlier. These new immigrants brought over different languages and customs that seemed to resist the urge to conform or Americanize, as the Irish and Germans had done before them. In these two enormous 19th century cities, New York and Brooklyn, basic city services were stretched thin. Now, if you've listened to a few Bowery Boys episodes, you know that this is not an unfamiliar idea. But I want you to stop and think what this really means to live in a city that barely knows that you exist, living in a place that's openly hostile to your presence in many cases. So imagine yourself as a single mother or a child with with an affliction of some kind, some kind of special need, or a family with a religious consideration that might be seen as bizarre or even suspicious. Now, imagine you're one of those people, but you're not an immigrant. You're a black New Yorker whose needs ranked low in priority when it came to most city hospitals and social services. Now, the very first groups that stepped in to assist in New York's growing health crisis were religious organizations who provided social services and sometimes even health care. Political organizations like Tammany Hall could provide vital services to some ethnic groups within crowded neighborhoods, provided, of course, that they turned out to vote for their candidates. But by the 1870s, there was another force for change developing in the United States. This was a force that used the country's most undervalued resource in many ways, women. Or more specifically, progressive women. Now, I mean progressive in the 19th century sense. Women not merely satisfied with their traditional roles in the household. Women who wanted to be more than a wife, a daughter, or a grandmother. In the 1870s, you had many prominent outspoken women by this time. Dangerous women, according to the press, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who made a claim for the elevation of women in the public sphere. Women who were not defined by their husbands or their social class, although a great many of these women from this period were quite wealthy and very socially connected. Now, right now at the Brooklyn Historical Society in Brooklyn Heights, they're currently hosting a fascinating new exhibition called Taking Care of Brooklyn, Stories of Sickness and Health, which we'll talk about a little bit more later in the show. But I spoke with the historian and curator of the exhibition, Julie Golia, about the reasons that women became so socially prominent during this period. We have Seneca Falls taking place in 1848. We have the remarkable role of women in the abolitionist movement and then in the suffrage movement. And what is coming out of this is a generation of women who are thinking more carefully about what they can contribute to American society and what their rights are in American society. And now something really interesting takes place in the 19th century, which is that women who are largely unsuccessful at making a claim to the same rights that men have, namely votes, begin to carve out a gendered niche um, by which they can participate in public and civil 
life. And rather than framing them against universal rights, they actually argue what gender historians often call the expediency argument, which is that women have a unique thing to bring to public life, that women can clean up the city, women can clean up politics, women will bring their own essential nature, their mothering nature, and they will fix the problems of urban life. This argument for women being positioned to clean up the city, to tackle a growing number of urban problems, was very well-timed. Because after the Civil War, a mix of individuals from private and public institutions in New York began looking at the basic roles of charity, education, and healthcare as having a universal benefit for the city. That functions traditionally associated with churches could be applied broadly. This concept was so structured along religious examples that this radical form of outreach was known as the social gospel. But in cities like New York and Brooklyn in the 1880s, with growing Jewish populations and with well-established Catholic communities, the social gospel ideals soon outgrew and evolved into programs for more diverse communities, to a degree, which I'll explain later. And in almost every facet of what would become known as the progressive era or progressive movement, women would play a major role in shaping the future of the United States. One major institution that was born during this period was known as the Settlement House. The function of a settlement house is specifically shaped by the urban immigrant experience, with care workers settling into a densely populated neighborhood in need of care. Settlement houses did probably more things than I can even list. So settlement houses offered health care. They offered child care. They offered kindergartens. They offered Americanization classes. They offered sewing classes. They offered food pantries and kitchens. Workers at settlement houses taught women a template of becoming American. Everything from language classes to, quote, American ways of raising children. On the one hand, they offered healthcare services for mothers and infants that essentially did not exist elsewhere. They ameliorated conditions that led to rapid decreases in infant mortality rates, in maternal mortality rates. But there was also kind of a flip side to that, which is that settlement houses were seen as fundamentally Americanizing. Many incredibly well-meaning runners and workers at settlement houses looked down on the practices that many immigrants brought. And so part of that was the Americanization of childcare, if you will. So don't cook like this, cook like this. Don't feed your child the way you thought you were supposed to, feed them this way. Yet the settlement house movement plays such an influential role in the American immigrant experience that most families with urban immigrant roots in the United States today can share a settlement house experience. The first settlement house in the entire world was named Toynbee Hall, which opened in London in 1884. Three years later, an Illinois woman who had first read about Toynbee in Century Magazine decided to pay a visit. Her name was Jane Adams, and her Chicago settlement house would change the world. It was called Hull House. Last year, the podcast The History Chicks, which is a podcast about the great women of history, and it's hosted by Beckett Graham and Susan Vollenweider, well, they released two episodes last year about Jane Addams. So 
I asked Beckett to give me a little bit of insight into Jane's motivation. It was a visit to the famous Toynbee Hall Settlement House in London that changed Jane Addams' life forever. Charity, as it had been practiced in the past, was sort of, you know, lady bountiful. The lady of the manor might bring you a leg of lamb, or on a larger scale, might endow a hospital or a workhouse. Toynbee Hall was just a radical departure from this traditional model of charity. People of means, all men in Toynbee's case, dedicated their lives to providing service to those who were less well off, but they didn't just feed the bodies, but also their minds. They held classes, they created social clubs, negotiated with lawmakers on the poor's behalf. They were advocates that had a louder voice. They wanted to create a sense of community that crossed class lines. And when Jane Addams saw this, her heart just soared. She had it. She knew exactly what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to recreate Toynbee Hall in America. Adams would develop a model for the American Settlement House that would operate as a sort of social laboratory for women. It would not only provide urban areas with desperately needed service, it would provide a generation of women with a genuine outlet outside the sphere of church and family. More and more middle-class and upper-class women were getting college degrees, but society hadn't kept up. So imagine that you spent four years being celebrated by your peers for your intellectual achievements, and now everyone around you expects you to stop all that and get married, run a house. Women with intellectual curiosity and a desire to improve the world really didn't have that many outlets outside of raising good children, which was, of course, admirable, but not for everyone. So when Jane Addams began her project at Whole House, it was as much for the givers of help as for the receivers. She thought of it as a place where college-educated women could finally reach their potential by working toward a better world. And with a few notable exceptions, the workers at her house were all women. And it became an inspiration for other settlement houses across the country. Less than 10 years after Whole House opened in Chicago, there were over 100 settlement houses in America. New Yorkers were eager to apply the settlement house solution to their city in need. And one of the places that needed them the most in the 1880s was the Lower East Side. The very first settlement house in New York was opened by a man named Stanton Coit. He opened the Neighborhood Guild in 1886, located on Rivington Street. Today, it now goes by the name University Settlement Society of New York, and it's still located on Rivington to this day. Three years later, in 1889, they would be joined on Rivington, at 95 Rivington, to be exact, by the college settlement. This was a unique experiment formed by a group of college-age women, most from wealthy families, many more occasioned, perhaps, to a Fifth Avenue lifestyle. Here, up to four women would permanently live on Rivington Street, while many others would stay for shorter durations. These employees would be selected from the alumna of various Northeastern women's colleges. The college settlement opened its doors to Rivington Street, providing English and cooking classes, and even a few surprising services. For instance, a public bath in the basement, and a lending library before there were public libraries with almost 1,000 books. 
I imagine it must have been quite an eye-opening experience for many young women employed here, many who had been sheltered from the harsh realities of poverty and overcrowding. One of the young women inspired by the mission of the college settlement was Mary Harriman. She was the eldest daughter of one of the richest men in America, the railroad tycoon E.H. Harriman. So Mary volunteered at College Settlement while a student at Barnard and believed that she could enlist even more of her friends from the social register to join the cause. She once said, quote, There is an exceptionally large number of debutantes coming out our year. What can we do to make it a particular good year to show that we recognize an obligation to the community besides having a good time? She ended up getting dozens of her friends and acquaintances interested, and in 1901 formed the Junior League for the Promotion of Settlement Houses, still operating today in several cities as the Association of Junior Leagues International. Four years later, a 19-year-old named Eleanor Roosevelt began volunteering at the college settlement, teaching calisthenics and dancing. It was here that Roosevelt would begin to shake off some of her initial prejudices about immigrant communities, and would later become one of the most outspoken crusaders for human rights in the 20th century. But not all volunteers at the college settlement were Fifth Avenue debutantes. In 1893, a young nursing student from Rochester, New York, took up residence here on Rivington Street, a woman named Lillian Wald. Wald came from a very different Jewish-American world than the people she would later meet here on the Lower East Side. Her family was comfortably middle class, and as descendants of German Jews who first arrived in the 1840s, like many before them, would have chosen to assimilate into American society. An experience quite different from the newly arrived Russian and Eastern European Jewish immigrants, many who couldn't speak English. Lillian Wald saw nursing as both a way to help people, but also to help herself, to get away from a conventional woman's course in society. According to biographer Marjorie Feld, quote, Whether Vassar or nursing school, hers was the choice of a woman's world. There, she would be nurtured by her relationships with other women, and defined not by her marriage, but by her education and accomplishments. Following nursing school, she worked for a short time at the college settlement, before she set out on her own, with a friend and fellow nurse, Mary Brewster, the two of them renting out an apartment on Jefferson Street. But this was not Laverne and Shirley. One might even call this a bit of an indie settlement-inspired idea the two of them had here, and one, quite frankly, unheard of for women in the early 1890s. Lillian Wall fell not just in love with her mission, but with the people themselves. She didn't see wayward foreigners in need of total correction, as even many in the settlement house movement thought. Instead, Lillian Wald saw inspiration. And I can't actually put this into words better than Lillian's own. So I've enlisted Tanya Bielski-Brom from the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. And you may know that name if you've listened to our back catalog, because Tanya has co-hosted with me a few episodes of the Bowery Boys podcast from a few years back. Here's Tanya to read from Lillian Wald's 1915 autobiography, The House on Henry Street. 
The visitor, who sees our neighborhood for the first time at the hour when school is dismissed, reacts with joy or dismay at the sight, not paralleled in any part of the world, of thousands of little ones on a single city block. Out they pour, the little hyphenated Americans, more conscious of their patriotism than perhaps any other large group of children that could be found in our land. Unaware that to some of us, they carry on their shoulders our hopes for a finer, more democratic America, when the worthy things they bring to us shall be recognized, and that good in their old world traditions and culture shall be mingled with the best that lies within our new world ideals. As a nation, we must rise or fall as we serve or fail these future citizens. In 1893, Lillian Wald met the financier Jacob Schiff, a Jewish-American banker who was looking to provide for the Lower East Side's growing Jewish community. He would serve as a father figure for Wald throughout her career and took a chance on her unique viewpoint on assisting the poor. Two years later, Schiff bankrolled a new home for a new settlement house. Three old houses, all in a row on Henry Street. The old merchant homes had once seen a fleeting elegance in the 1830s. But here, over 60 years later, the shipyards were gone, and these houses were now neighbors to a mass of tenements. In 1895, Lillian Wald moved into 265 Henry Street, 263 and 267 would come shortly afterwards. And it was here that she founded the Nurses Settlement, later to become the Henry Street Settlement. Katie Vogel is the public historian at Henry Street Settlement. She met me on the ground floor at a brand new permanent public exhibition on the history of the settlement called The House on Henry Street. And then she took me on a very interesting tour of the place. Believe it or not, during Lillian's lifetime here, none of these buildings were actually connected inside. Today, they're all adjoined, so it's, it's almost a little disorienting. It's like one big house on the inside. Part of this tour involved wandering to the upper floors. They're all offices today, but once these were the nurses' rooms of Lillian Wald's visiting nurse service. So, so now we're in front of a bedroom. This is a for the for the nurses, right? <laughs> yes. So this is where the um, nurses lived, and above the settlement house on the top floors, and it's these tiny little bedrooms which were originally the um, servants' quarters when this was an individual family's home. Mm-hmm. You can pass by. Oh, sorry. Yes, go ahead. Don't mind us. We're just, uh... Settlement houses had always been places where residents of neighborhoods could find a place of comfort. Henry Street Settlement went a little further. With the Visiting Nurses Program, the settlement went out to the people. In fact, Wald coined the phrase public health nursing, which is a nursing professional who worked for a community and not necessarily for a specific doctor or hospital. There were already visiting nurses that existed in the United States at that time, but not on a mass scale in the way that the visiting nurses service here, like in terms of the numbers of people they um, begin to serve. And the idea was to go and meet the need where it was in the home. Mm-hmm. You know, the options that were open to people in terms of health care, were pretty limited, but going to a hospital in the late 1800s 
Um, the conditions were pretty terrible. You'd probably get more sick if you go to a hospital. Mm-hmm. This was an idea inspired by an experience she had had early in her career here in the Lower East Side, and one that she wrote about in the house on Henry Street. And the story goes, according to her memoir, that a little girl who was about seven years old came in and interrupted the class. It was a bed-making class for immigrant mothers. And she alerted Lillianwald that her mother was dying in a nearby tenement building a few blocks away. And she had just given birth and asked if Lillianwald, who she knew was a nurse in the neighborhood, to come and care for her mother. So Lillian Wald follows this little girl through the streets of the Lower East Side. And although she had been teaching a class down here, she wasn't intimately familiar with the issues in the neighborhood. And so following this little girl and going upstairs in this tenement building and seeing this woman left to just die by her doctor because she didn't have the money to pay the bill really woke her up. And in her memoir, she calls it a baptism of fire. That morning's experience was a baptism of fire. When early morning found me still awake, my naive conviction remained that if people knew things and things meant everything implied in the condition of this family, such horrors would cease to exist. And I rejoiced that I had a training in the care of the sick that in itself would give me an organic relationship to the neighborhood in which this awakening had come. And this was the moment for her when she, again, really realized the environmental factors caused such dramatic inequality and how this woman had just been left to die because she didn't have the money to pay. In an era where poor patients were often turned away from standard hospitals, Wald and her team of extraordinary nurses provided care for free often risking their own lives to enter squalid tenements and exposing themselves to many illnesses that today have been completely eradicated. But the visiting nurse program wasn't Lillian's only innovation. With the Henry Street settlement, she wasn't just looking to solve immediate problems, but deep-seated ones, social and political problems. I think the way that Lillian Wald was not just providing direct services to her neighbors, but then also saw it as essential to fight for structural change, mm-hmm. that that was also not all settlement houses were, were doing that. And so her being deeply involved in activism and advocacy work for you know child labor laws and women's suffrage in the early 1900s and for the rights of immigrants. Again, you know, that's that kind of activism work a lot of settlement house workers didn't want to touch. While we were walking around, Katie showed me two of the most famous spaces within the settlement house. The first is the dining room in the original building, 265, where visiting nurses would meet each morning for their daily assignments. This is where they would host plays and musical performances for the neighborhood. It would also be here where Lillian would meet with politicians and labor organizers. And it was here, in this room, on the evening of February 12, 1909, that a collection of both black and white activists would gather and form a new organization, the NAACP. The second famous space here at Henry Street Settlement was actually out behind the building in an enclosed backyard. It was here that Lillian built one of New York City's very first playgrounds. Um, So 
This is the site of the neighborhood playground right behind Lillianwald's home. And there were other playgrounds in the city, but they were private playgrounds. But then there were no city-built playgrounds in the United States at that time. And there certainly weren't any in this neighborhood, but there were thousands and thousands of children. Yep, and uh, it was a really crowded neighborhood, and it was dangerous to play in the streets because there were street vendors, push carts, horses and carriages. And so Lillian Wald opened up a playground to neighborhood kids back here. She describes it beautifully in her memoir as um, there being flowers and wisteria and sandboxes and gymnastics equipment and just like an oasis for Mm -hmm. neighborhood kids. (laughs) And in the mornings, there would be an informal kindergarten back here. And then after school hours, kids would line up outside of Henry Street to, to try to get a spot in the playground and older kids who were bringing their younger siblings would um, get priority. (laughs) And um, (laughs) then at night, it was a space for teenagers to have social space at night for labor organizers to have a place to meet. (laughs) And it was such a successful experiment that eventually the city of New York took to building public parks of their own. As a result, Seward Park which is just a few blocks west of the Henry Street Settlement, Seward Park became the first permanent city playground in the United States. Lillian Wall died on September 1st, 1940, but the Henry Street Settlement continues her mission to this day throughout the city in 17 separate sites, or actually, I guess I should say 18 separate sites now, because in 2017, they bought an old firehouse, Engine Company Number 15, and it's located at 269 Henry Street, next door to the present headquarters. The visiting nurses of Henry Street Settlement would change the lives of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. By 1933, the year that Lillian Wald retired, 265 nurses had worked for them and had made over half a million home visits to over 100,000 patients. Now, one of those nurses was a woman named Florence Kelly, who lived at the settlement for 27 years. As one of the founding members of the NAACP, she worked closely with people like W.E.B. Du Bois and championed the rights of women and children throughout her life. Another important woman to the progressive era who worked briefly as a visiting nurse for Lillian Wald was a young mother named Margaret Sanger. We'll get to Sanger's story and the experiences of a few other important women of the progressive era after this. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the Flatiron School. When we look to the future of work in 10 years' time, will we even recognize the landscape? Probably not. The tech revolution has rapidly revolutionized the way we live and work, and the skills you need to succeed in the modern workforce are changing faster than ever. Born in New York City, Flatiron School provides 21st century skills to help its students succeed and launch a career in tech in as little as four months. They teach people of all backgrounds and experience levels, software engineering, data science, and UX UI design online, and at their WeWork campuses in New York, London, and at campuses around the world. And they don't stop there. 
take confidence in their tuition-backed guarantee. Follow their proven job search framework and receive a job in six months or your tuition back. Join the thousands of people who have changed things for the better. Find out more at flatironschool.com slash Boys. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. So this past week, it was a hot, hot weekend. The temperature, I think, tipped up to 93 degrees. I went up to Washington Heights and paid a visit to Mother Frances Cabrini and the Cabrini Shrine. So people can actually come and visit the shrine, not just worshippers, but people who are interested in the history. Absolutely. Granted, the vast number of visitors that we have right now are immigrants 
and they come to pray for folks back home or to pray for their own immigration cause or for healing or or you get grandmothers who are praying for wives uh, for husbands for their granddaughters <laughs> but um, I would say a third of the visitors who come are interested in the historical aspects of this woman who was so active in serving everyone in need in New York City. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Sherry Sprosty, the director of liturgy at Mother Cabrini Shrine, sitting with her within the Cabrini Shrine Chapel, surrounded by these really beautiful mosaics that revealed the life story of Mother Cabrini, who was born in 1850 in northern Italy. Cabrini's mission to the United States in 1889 was to tackle a very specific crisis. Bishop Scalabrini, an Italian bishop, knew about the dreadful conditions happening in New York City in the 1880s and 90s, and he asked her to come to New York City. So Mother Cabrini and the sisters sailed into New York Harbor. They got to marvel at the Statue of Liberty back in the days when it was still golden copper. They sailed into the harbor eager to begin their service. No one met them at the mm -hmm. dock. No one was there to meet them because they came way faster than anyone expected. And the next day they made their way to Archbishop Corrigan's residence to let him know that they were ready to get started. And he said, what are you doing here? Didn't you get my letter? Go back. We don't have anywhere for you to live. Cabrini did eventually get settled in a parish in the Lower East Side. Newly arrived Italian Catholics actually had very few places to worship in New York back then. There were lots of Catholic churches, but they were dominated by Irish worshipers, with services only in English. Italian immigrants were also among the very poorest New Yorkers at this time and were not welcomed in many places. Mission was to teach the faith to the children because they were losing their faith. There was no one to teach it to them Italian, and there was no one to say Mass in Italian at that time. Mm -hmm. So they went to St. Joachim Parish, and they asked the pastor there if after the last Mass they could have a catechism class. And then they went out into the neighborhood and knocked on the kitchen doors and talked to the mamas who talked to the mamas who talked to the mamas. <laughs> and they figured they might have 50 kids there for this catechism class at the end of the day. There were 350 people who showed up. Italian immigration would greatly increase within the next couple decades here. And the sisters' mission would expand into education and health care throughout the city. Now, where we were sitting on that afternoon, the location of the Cabrini Shrine, we were on that spot because of a decision made by Mother Cabrini 120 years ago. In 1899, she came up here herself okay. by horse and buggy, and she loved it because it was near water. Uh, it was high above on the Palisades here. There was a breeze. The air was clean. She acquired this land, and the purpose was to build a place for the orphans to come up and catch their breath before it was decided which orphanage was appropriate for them, and also as a house of formation for the younger sisters. The sisters moved out of their convent down on 14th Street, and they moved up here in September of 1899, and this became the center of their ministry at that time. You can find Cabrini's influence all over the place today, far and wide, 67 institutions throughout the United States, hospitals, orphanages, Catholic schools. In 1946, she was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, the first naturalized citizen of the United States to become a saint. 
She always told her sisters that the hospitals were for everyone, that they were not for Italians only, and the schools were open to anyone. She taught her students in English and in Italian, and she insisted that they be taught to be good citizens of the United States of America and that they know about the country and be able to support the country as proud citizens here. Now, I should add that the reliquary of Mother Cabrini herself is in the chapel, her body lying in a glass coffin at the altar. Now, some of you might find her a strange addition to this list of women here of the progressive era, just as the objectives of Lillian Wald and the Henry Street Settlement would soon branch beyond the largely Jewish residents of the Lower East Side, so too would Cabrini's mission, extending outside the sphere of Italian-Americans. But we shouldn't belittle that initial specific focus into one community, because even an institution as laudable as the Settlement House was imperfect, limited by the prejudices of both its leaders and the people it served. New York City had dozens of thriving settlement houses by the start of the 20th century, but these places did not open their doors for every person in need. Take, for example, the African-American community during this period. Now, we didn't yet have a thriving Harlem in the way that we would just two decades later. During this period, many black Southerners were just beginning to move north in a population wave that would become known as the Great Migration. By 1910, the largest black neighborhood in New York was located in San Juan Hill. Few city services and fewer settlement houses were available for African Americans here. So two determined black women decided to start one themselves. Maricha Raymond Lyons was born in 1848 into New York's free black community. In fact, during her childhood, she and her family lived in Seneca Village, the free black village which was eliminated with the construction of Central Park. Her parents were also agents along the Underground Railroad, helping enslaved people from the South escape to northern New York and Canada. During the Civil War draft riots, the Lyons' home was burned to the ground, and the family fled New York at night to escape mobs, taking their anger out against the city's black citizens. But Maritza returned to the area as a young woman, becoming a school teacher in the first school for black children in the neighborhood of Fort Greene in Brooklyn. She worked for the school system her entire life. In 1892, she became close friends with Ida B. Wells, a journalist soon to become the most famous black woman in America, thanks to her exposés on lynching of black Southerners and a tour of America and England that presented these terrible crimes to mostly white audiences. That year, Lyons organized a dinner for Ida B. Wells with another local activist here named Victoria Earl Matthews, a younger woman who had been born into slavery in Georgia in 1861. Lyons and Matthews had much in common and began working closely together. That same year, in 1892, they formed a political organization strictly for black women, the Women's Loyal Union of New York and Brooklyn. And then five years later, in 1897, Lyons joined Matthews when she decided to form a settlement house in the underserved neighborhood of San Juan Hill. Matthews would call her settlement house 
the White Rose Mission. And this is a particular example of how a settlement house can really work when it focuses narrowly. Among the objectives of the White Rose Mission was to help young black women from the South, sometimes even meeting them at city piers to prevent them of falling into the hands of predatory men. The mission provided these women with food, lodging, and job training for those limited jobs that were available to black women at this time. And they also made efforts to help new immigrants from the West Indies during this period. By the 1920s, the White Rose Mission would naturally gravitate up to Harlem, where it remained until it closed in 1984. Now, earlier I mentioned this brand new exhibition at the Brooklyn Historical Society called Taking Care of Brooklyn, Stories of Sickness and Health, exploring the unique challenges faced by the former independent city of Brooklyn and current borough of New York City. The exhibition covers 400 years of history through themes of care, medical conditions, and inequality. And they go from the Lenape and the Revolutionary War to lead poisoning and the AIDS epidemic. Last week, Julie Golia gave me a tour of the exhibition. And having just read and researched all about the White Rose Mission that was here in Manhattan, I was really excited to see one particular artifact that was on display. Um, but we also have here in Brooklyn an incredibly long and rich tradition of African-American um, communities creating these organizations for themselves. And in our archives, we were actually able to learn about one settlement house called the Lincoln Settlement. And so that is what this particular artifact is, an annual report of, right. from one of these African-American settlement houses. It's actually from our research, the only African-American settlement house in Brooklyn at the time. It was called the Lincoln Settlement. It was established in 1908 by a woman named Dr. Verena Morton-Jones. And what it begins to do is um, cater to the growing African-American community that is rapidly expanding here in Brooklyn thanks to the Great Migration. And they existed really well into the 1940s. I think we lost track of them around 1948. And so we have amazing records of them. They offered um, camps outside of the city to children to get away during the summer. They offered kindergarten daycare. They offered vocational training. They had a basketball team. And so they offered unbelievable supports, including health services to African-Americans um, in a city that with settlement houses that were largely neglecting their needs. Right next to that was another display on perhaps one of Brooklyn's most important contributions to women's health. So many firsts took place in Brooklyn. I mean, that was one of the major things that we discovered throughout this exhibition. It's unbelievable how many firsts um, in terms of health history happened here. And one of those was the establishment of the first birth control clinic in the United States at a time when the provision of information about birth control and birth control itself was largely illegal. Margaret Sanger was one of the most notorious women in New York in 1916. The trained nurse was also involved in radical politics and labor protests, influenced by other radicals of the day like Emma Goldman. She believed that one solution to the many problems of the American poor was the inability to control their own family size, for women to be able to make that decision themselves. But knowledge of birth control was heavily constrained 
in the 20th century. Thanks to the morally driven Comstock laws, it was completely illegal to disseminate information on birth control. Of course, rich women, through their social channels, could access birth control if they wished, and men, through their doctors, could receive sexual protective measures, or male shields, as they were called, measures to guard themselves from venereal diseases. But what Sanger proposed was the education of poor women about birth control options, in part because the only birth control most women even knew that they were even aware of was abortion, which was illegal, but available through illegal abortionists throughout the city and offered in coded advertisements in the back pages of newspapers. Margaret Sanger opened America's first birth control clinic on October 16, 1916, on Amboy Street in Brownsville, Brooklyn, a predominantly Jewish immigrant neighborhood. But women from all walks of life came to her clinic, receiving information about different kinds of birth control, including options that could be purchased from the local pharmacy just down the street. But this was not the only purpose of the Brownsville Clinic. She was a very savvy public relations person as well, and she knew that the establishment of an illegal birth control clinic was going to be all about getting arrested, right? The idea here was, of course, to serve people. And actually, during the nine days that her um, birth control clinic was open, she served hundreds of women, um, gave them information, education about birth control, and then sometimes birth control itself. But her ultimate goal was actually to be shut down, to be arrested, and then basically to force the issue in the New York legislature. Now, it would take a while, but her dogged efforts to bring birth control into the open would be successful. In 1936, those parts of the Comstock laws regarding birth control were overturned. And the following year, the American Medical Association endorsed birth control as a legitimate medical service. And that road to normalcy began here in Brownsville, Brooklyn. <clears throat> in researching many progressives of this period, you run into certain descriptions of immigrant groups, turns of phrases that are, I guess, let's just say, unfortunate very dated. You can chalk it up to, I guess, times have changed. But there's no way to excuse the fact that Margaret Sanger, in passionately promoting birth control and touting the fundamental right of a woman to control her fate, Margaret Sanger latched this wagon to one of the most horrific philosophies of the early 20th century, eugenics. Now, eugenics is the notion that human beings can be improved with selective breeding by weeding out certain genetic traits associated with what they believed in the early 20th century were societal ills. Birth control as an individual family matter was one thing. Wielded by elites from entrenched wealthy enclaves, using dangerously faulty science to, quote, weed out undesirables was something else entirely. And Sanger was not alone here. Do you remember early in the show, Mary Harriman, founder of the Junior League? Her mother, also named Mary Harriman, was the chief benefactor of the eugenics record office at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in Long Island. Additional funding for that lab would come from the Rockefellers and the Carnegie Foundation. 
a settlement house in Brooklyn for Italian immigrants was managed by the brother of the eugenics record office founder, Charles Davenport. But most caregivers in New York City chose to turn to more healthy, more proven, more immediate ways to combat urgent health issues. With all the women I've discussed and their organizations, all of them, they had to deal with major diseases, epidemics of all kinds. And one very painful fact of life here in New York City, a high infant mortality rate due to disease, poor nutrition, and even poor access to clean cow's milk and a low rate of home nursing among poor working women. However, by the 1930s, the infant mortality rate in New York fell drastically thanks to the efforts of doctors like the enigmatic Sarah Josephine Baker. Now, this is not, of course, the iconic American-born French entertainer, Josephine Baker. And in fact, she was referred to by most people as Dr. Joe. Dr. Joe wore men's clothes for most of her life and spent most of her later years with a Hollywood screenwriter named Ida Alexa Ross Wiley. Dr. Joe later wrote, quote, I wore a standard costume, almost a uniform, because the last thing I wanted was to be conspicuously feminine when working with men. I mentioned her description to illustrate just what an unusual figure she was, working days and nights in the tenement neighborhood of Hell's Kitchen during the first part of the 20th century. In 1889, Dr. Jo had her own private medical practice in New York, which was a rarity for women of that era. By 1907, she had become the city's assistant commissioner of health, a job which became all the more thrilling than it may seem when she joined in the search and apprehension of Mary Mallon, the asymptomatic disease carrier known in the popular press as Typhoid Mary. Dr. Joe launched innovative educational programs specifically focused on young mothers and their infants that had an immediate impact. In the following year, 1908, she founded the Division of Child Hygiene, the first government agency focused on the improvement of child health in the United States. By the time she retired in the 1920s, New York City had one of the lowest infant mortality rates in the country. And finally, I'd like to mention just two more women who happened to be associated with the Henry Street Settlement. One more time here with Katie Vogel, the public historian at the settlement. The Lewison sisters, Allison, Irene, Lewison, had been volunteering at the settlement. They were from a wealthy family, volunteering here for about 10 years in the arts programming. And a lot of that, again, was taking place in the dining room upstairs because there wasn't a dedicated art center then they um, helped fund and founded the Neighborhood Playhouse in 1915. So that's up on Grand Street, just two blocks away from the headquarters of Henry Street. And that was a dedicated art center for the settlement. The idea was to provide arts programming and arts education to anyone regardless of um, income. So, And Lillianwald saw that as part of being connected to health and wellness. Now today, the Neighborhood Playhouse building is beautiful. It's still standing. It's part of the Abrams Arts Center. 
Irene was a collector of historical costumes, and her favorite were often used here on the Playhouse stage. In 1928, the sisters moved their company and all their costumes uptown to be closer to the Broadway scene, renaming it as the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater, where actors such as Grace Kelly and Gregory Peck would eventually study acting. Irene's Neighborhood Playhouse costume collection would become the basis of the Museum of Costume Art in 1937, which just a few years later would be acquired by the Metropolitan Museum and renamed the Costume Institute. And that, my friends, is the basis of the Met's Anna Wintour Costume Center today. Okay, so the next time you see Rihanna or Lady Gaga in a flamboyant frock at the Met Gala, think of the Neighborhood Playhouse and think of the Henry Street Settlement. Now, of course, I've spent the show here with just a few important women of the progressive era, and by design, almost no men. Clearly, there were many New York men involved with the improvement of New York City at this time, from Jacob Rees to Fiorella LaGuardia. I heard someone say once that it would take a village to change the world for the better. Special, big, wonderful thanks to all of my guests this week on the show, Tanya Bielski-Brom, Beckett Graham, Julie Golia, Sherry Sprosty, and Katie Vogel. On our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, I'll have more information about each of these women and some beautiful photographs. In addition, I'll have details and links about how to visit some of the places that I talked about on this show, including the Henry Street Settlement's permanent exhibition, The House on Henry Street, which opened last year as part of their 125th anniversary celebration, and the Cabrini Shrine in Washington Heights, right off the A-Train on 190th Street, the Brooklyn Historical Society's Taking Care of Brooklyn, Stories of Sickness and Health, will be on display through the summer of 2022. I'll also have a link on our website to the History Chicks podcast episodes on Jane Addams for more information about her. And since you're visiting some websites, please visit BoweryBoysWalks.com. We've just booked a lot of brand new tour dates all over the city from Central Park to Flushing Meadows, from Greenwich Village to NoHo. Please join our amazing collection of tour guides. That's BoweryBoysWalks.com. I also want to really thank all of you who really support us with a small donation on Patreon.com. I mean, really, we could not do this show without you. I know you've heard us say that, but let me just tell you specifically, this show, this particular episode could not have possibly have happened. The amount of time it took to go to all of these different places and to organize everything, I could not have done if there were other things that were distracting me, especially, you know, with Tom not here. But even when he is here, we're able to put in more effort, more energy into this show and hopefully make each one better than the last. So we want to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon, including Francis B., Carol G., Katie P., and Courtney M. from New York City. Lisa D. from North Carolina, Cynthia C. from Arkansas, Mackenzie W. from Pennsylvania, Colleen S. from Maryland, Amanda F. from Washington State, and Hillary G. from California. 
Tom Myers will be back for our next show. It'll be a good old-fashioned duo show. So thank you very much for joining me in exploring the lives of these progressive-era pioneers. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.